Welcome to Off the Bench with Danny Cannell. Danny Cannell. Back to throw versus Danny. Beach is tight end. And Raja Bell. Bell has done three three. 22 to Raja. It's all the future of football right before your eyes. Just yell it out, man. He can't guard me. All right, what's going on? Welcome to Cannell and Bell hanging on a Wednesday. It is hump day. Raja, it's sooner for you. Like, your hump day is really like was yesterday. Correct. I went skiing last week. You're going skiing tomorrow night. You're, you're traveling out. Are you ready for this trip? I am ready. And the reason I wear a hat, I just want to, like, so I'm at a point now in my life where I'm so thin up top that I only have, like, two good days of a haircut. <laughs> right? right? So I'm saving it. Like, there I'm not go. getting a cut until tomorrow. Just so you're clean. So it lasts the trip. the trip, right? There you go. That's smart um, thinking. Yeah, thank you. Plan I'm planning. Right. And I consider it a win. Like I said before, if I come back, castless. Like, the rest I of it is fine. Like, whether I ski well or not, just that is. Oh, that's yes. a huge part of a ski trip. Trust right. me, my dad, doctor in Florida, he would, like, make his year yeah. <laughs> well, coming back from ski trips right. that had, like, torn ACLs, yeah, right. torn cartilage, all that. Right. So, yeah, we'll say that. We'll keep you in our thoughts as you're out there. Appreciate we that. had the same thing. It was like, please, just everybody healthy. Yeah. And, you get back, <laughs> uh, and then you get back fine. All right, we got a big show for you. Kyler Murray is taking some heat for his interviews at the Combine. We're going to break into that. Um, Duke, as we just mentioned in our read before the show, they barely escape Wake without Zion. What do they look like? What are their chances without him? And uh, maybe we'll get some Mark Kelly later, too. Because oh, Mark Kelly is making Whoa. around. The Deny Till You Die tour is going around out there. Maybe we'll hit on that in the last segment of the show. I don't know if Coca doesn't have a heart attack before then. But let's start off with the Celtics because they played the Warriors last night. Boston's a good team. We spent a lot of time talking about how dysfunctional they are in the locker room. Uh, Kyrie Irving is a mess. He's talking about how he doesn't like being an NBA star. Gordon Hayward has looked awful. Yep. Well, apparently they're not too bad because they go out and house the Golden State Warriors 128 to 95. Gordon Hayward, the guy who a lot of people thought was potentially done coming off that injury, dropped 30. Yep. 12 of 16 from the field, uh, 28 minutes coming off the bench. Kyrie was solid. They get the win. Is it time to say the Celtics are okay? No. <laughs> All right. So no. there's still drama. There's yeah. still issues. Look. This was a this is a wounded animal, like and wounded animals and and cornered animals become dangerous animals. Like they have to come out fighting, and so like Boston are it's not they're not bums, dude. They're a bunch of guys that can really play basketball. There's a reason why going into the season, a lot of people thought that Boston at, at the best version of themselves could challenge Golden State in a seven game series. The problem is. They haven't been the best version of themselves most of the year, and there's been this dysfunction around them. So, you know, people started to worry, including myself, whether or not you could become the best version of yourselves in 17 games. And I'm still not sure that they can. Last night was great. Gordon Hayward played great. Um, you know, I, I heard this morning people say he needs to get more shots and this and that. I disagree. Like, he didn't take that many shots. He was just really efficient. I think Gordon's a year away from uh, from being himself. It, it, you know, it took Paul George two years to come back from a gruesome leg injury like that. Gordon will be fine. Um, Kyrie had 11 assists, which is big, right? Because 11 assists and only, what do you have, nine, 18 points. He yep. was sharing the ball. Everybody else got a little bit of a taste. And more importantly, Danny, their energy last night was good. It was like, it was this, um, infectious type of defensive spirit. Like they held them to 40%. They held Golden State to 40% from the field and 22% from the three. They were challenging every pass. They were making every shot a contested shot. They were flying around. Um, and, and that sometimes when you'll just do that and let the rest of the funky stuff go, 
you know, you can pull yourself out of like this, this, this bad place that you're in. But the question is whether they, you know, whether they can consistently do that. Brad Stevens afterwards said, I think we played with purpose all the way through. We were very businesslike the whole night, even at halftime and just now after the game. We know we haven't played like that enough, but it's encouraging as a reminder that we can. Is this because they were playing the Warriors? Like, is that, like, how does that happen? Like, how does Brad Stevens get this type of effort out of his team every night? Cause I think it's easier to get up for the Warriors playing Golden State, the best team in the league. And I think when you hear other guys saying, man, it feels like work sometimes and it's right. not much fun. Like when you're kind of in the doldrums of the NBA schedule, like post all-star break, you're, you can see the end. You just want, like Kyrie said, I just want to get to the playoffs. Right. Like how do you get this type of effort or is it impossible to ask that for this team? Um, I think that playing Golden State had something to do with it. Like there's a natural rivalry there with, with Kyrie and, um, and Steph Curry. Like there, there's always been something there, uh, going back to when I was with Cleveland. Um, you know, that, that, that had something to do with it. You heard Kyrie kind of talk about the, the airplane ride. And I talked about it on the show the other day, like airplane rides and stuff being fountains of energy, like, yeah. and, and, and guys really getting together. That's a long plane ride. And even Kyrie came out and said that that was kind of cathartic for the team. So I think getting away from home probably played something, uh, played some role in it. But just generally speaking, Danny, when you have a team that's that talented, like they can only lose and look bad for so many games in a row. Like the law <laughs> averages say that one of these games are going to come out. And let's be, let's be real. Like they made shots. You know that becomes a different game if they come out and they're not hot right off the bat. If they don't experience that type of success, and you're up 11-0 against Golden State. Let's say you go down 9-0. I think the chances were highly likely that that team would tuck tail and become like the worst version of themselves. So all of that helps. But generally, I think playing Golden State and the timing of it was right for Boston last night. To your thought, uh, Kyrie Irving said we needed this. Well, it was just we were going to get to a point where we were just going to get tired of fighting each other, fighting the outside world, and it doesn't even really matter, so we just wanted to come out here and just play basketball. This is our sanctuary. Um I am down on this team. I think there is some dysfunction in that locker room. Am I crazy to write off this team as far as potentially winning the Eastern Conference and getting to the finals? You know, because they're, I was looking at Vegas, like Vegas is always a good indicator. Right. Because like, in our world, we come out here and we say, oh, this team is done or they're a mess. Sure. Vegas usually does a pretty good job of weeding out the emotions yep. and saying, you know what? This team is still pretty talented. They're the third favorite behind the Bucks, the Raptors. Uh, and it's, they're not that far behind. It's seven to two, their odds to reach the, uh, to win the Eastern Conference, which is the same as the Sixers. Um, and then it's like a massive drop off to the Pacers, Pistons. Sure. Everybody. So they're still like in this mix of four teams from the Eastern Conference. A week and a half ago, Rip and I were up on the HQ desk and I think they were about to play Toronto. And, you know, I picked Toronto to win the game, but I said that I, I don't know if you're any other team in the Eastern Conference that you want to draw Boston in a seven game series because of their potential. And if, if they are the best version of themselves, they're going to be able to beat anybody, right? Rip kind of disagreed with me, but uh, that's okay. Like, I, I think that they have not, they've underperformed, right? They've, they've not lived up to the hype, but to your, to your question, they are as dangerous as anybody. They, it's not going to require them completely changing who they are. They're just in a funk. Like it's sideways. There's, there are bad vibes there. If you can figure out how to get past those bad vibes, you don't want to play the Celtics in the, in the playoffs. And yes, they can beat any of those Eastern conference teams. I don't care who they are. If they're not funky and they're playing together, they have that type of firepower. Uh, Steve Kerr, it almost feels like you could hit this message on repeat every so often with the Warriors because I think he gets frustrated. And I think it's understandable. They're so good. They're so talented. I think they have nights where they just show up and they're like, eh, 
Like, we gotta play tonight. Like, it's just not a big yeah, 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 yeah. He said after, it looked to me like we were jogging up the floor. You can't play basketball jogging. You've got to sprint. Your cuts have to be hard. You have to be going all out. We did not go all out and it was embarrassing. I'm telling you, you could find this quote from Steve Kerr over the last three years and just plug it in after almost every loss that they've had. Sure. Because they should, they, if they were going all out, they could win every game almost. Like, yeah, literally. Yeah, no, totally. And you know what? You know what's fantastic? Cause you're talking about the, one of the best coaches in the NBA and, probably the best team, at least over the last five years in the NBA. Um, the message isn't like this reinventing the wheel type of, we need to go back to the drawing board and figure out new offense and new, <laughs> he's talking about like energy. Yep. You know what I mean? Sometimes sport boils down to, and it's, it's kind of reaffirming, if you will, kind of, it's, it's fascinating because I deal with youth, right? And sometimes like at the high school level, we'll come into a halftime and we'll come out in the second half and like you lose a game. And you say to the kids, they're looking at you like, man, you should have done something. Like you should have changed our, our defensive strategy or our offensive like schemes. And you're like, dude, they changed nothing. They didn't. All they did was play harder than you in the second half. And it, it's just kind of fascinating, um, to, to know that at times it just boils down to who's going to come out and play harder. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, like oh, who's going to be more tuned in, more dialed in, more, more awake when the game starts and who's going to play harder. Yep. For sure. So I think there's no, you know, no worries about the Warriors. And I still, I'm still out on the Celtics, but we'll have to see how it plays out. Over you should, but, but you should, that's fair. Yeah. They have not, they've been an inconsistent team, uh, for, for a, a long enough time now where you should kind of be concerned about what they could do. But just if they, if they figure it out in these last 17 games, they could be a dangerous, uh, playoff team. All right. So you know who I'm not sure if I'm in or out on? Uh, Kyler Murray. Yeah. Like I, so he made a lot of news, made a lot of waves. You kind of called this though. You told me this after your Super Bowl like interaction with him. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, cause I'm not criticizing him. I had concerns that this would happen. So basically what happened, Charlie Casterly on the NFL network had some very strong comments about Kyler Murray. Um, his full comments started off, he said he better hope Cliff Kingsbury takes him number one because this was not good. This was one of the worst. These were the worst comments I ever got on a high-rated quarterback, and I've been doing this a long time. Um, he said his work ethic wasn't good. His film study wasn't good. His interview at the board wasn't good. I basically laid into him. Now, there was some, a lot of talk about, hey, when you hear this from anonymous scouts, are you, should you say this if you're Charlie Casterly? Charlie Casterly is not a reporter. He's an analyst. I mean, he's an opinion guy. He's supposed right. to give his opinion. Right. If that's what he's hearing, I have no problem with him giving these opinions on air. It's not like he's reporting this as fact. He's saying, I'm hearing these things. And the guy who's been connected to the NFL for a long, long time, I tend to believe him. Now, I do think there's a very good chance that these teams might be feeding this information so that potentially Kyler Murray drops them. Right. I think there's other motives that come into play, like teams positioning where they are. They want to, If they don't have a chance at him, they want to make him look bad. So I think that's all fair game. But I think Charlie Casserly is, every, is within his right to give these comments. The reason I thought this would happen at the Combine is because on my radio show on Sirius XM, sat down with Kyler Murray, we interviewed him for about 10 minutes, and I told you, I was like, man, he came across as unprepared, right. not sure, not very confident, and just, he wasn't a good communicator. And so I thought to myself, and I told you this, I was like, uh-oh, I'm like, he is going to struggle at Indianapolis mm -hmm. when he has to go in a room, and he's going to get asked a lot harder questions than I asked him, which were a lot of softballs. I mean, sure. Like, hey, baseball or football, why do you love football? Like, they were pretty easy. Mm -hmm. I didn't grill him that hard. And then really, when he went on the Dan Patrick show and kind of did the same interview, yeah. he got a lot more play. 
everybody was like, uh-oh, what is going on? So to me, it's not surprising at all that if there were 10 teams that he sat down with and some of them were less than impressed, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, I, here's my here's my thing. Because I, I didn't, I wasn't there. I didn't meet him. Right? I, I've just seen some of the interviews, and I, I I questioned it too from some of that. I mean, he was taking like five and six seconds looking around trying to figure out. And then my question was like, is that is that the type of guy that you want at the podium representing your franchise? Like, and that was my only question, right? Like, right. I didn't know if he was nervous or if he was trying to be coy with the media or what have you. As as, as far as Charlie Casserly is concerned, like I would ask, and this is me genuinely asking you. They could tell me that he wasn't good on the board because they probably put him on the board in the room. Right. But how do they know about his leadership skills and his, and his, uh, his film study? Like they didn't have enough time with him, these NFL teams to be giving Charlie Cassidy this information, right? So right. if you're Charlie, while well, I am okay with you giving opinion, I do think it would be incumbent upon you to maybe check with some people who do have history with him doing those things. Like, right. you know, maybe Cliff, not Cliff Kingsbury, but uh, Lincoln, Lincoln Riley. Riley, like teammates, like someone who can either corroborate or, or put to bed what you're hearing from these guys. Cause I don't know that these scouts had enough time with him to really criticize his A, leadership ability and B, his film study. Now the, the board is fair game because you got to assess that yourself. And so I'm asking, how would they be able to speak to that? So they would. It's interesting you said that because Lincoln Riley was just on the Dan Patrick show this morning and he, he defended his quarterback, obviously. Okay. He said, I've spoken, this is Lincoln Riley, I've personally spoken with the majority of teams that he met with at the Combine, and everybody was glowing about their conversations with Kyler, basically the complete opposite of what Charlie said. And then he continued, Kyler was a tremendous leader for us. All he cares about is winning. I think our team uh, took on his personality. This is the hardest part of the evaluation process. Right. Like who to believe and who not to. And that's why I really have a hard time doling out judgments on players without knowing them. Sure. And like I had a very little interaction and I was trying to fight myself saying, don't walk away from here and forget what he did on film. Correct. Like don't forget he was a spectacular player. Don't forget he took his team to the playoffs. He yeah. was a winner. Like, yeah, don't yeah, yeah. Don't be a prisoner things. of that moment where exactly. he, yeah. And, but I do think like Lincoln Riley is also a very biased individual. It's his coach. It's great for Oklahoma if he's the number one quarterback or the number one overall pick in the mm -hmm. draft because they'll have it plastered all over their recruit recruiting material. I do think, like from, I do think it comes into play though, the evaluation, like speed dating. Like, do you believe that you can find out enough about a person to see if you have enough in common, if there's success there, if there's a spark there, or can you judge a person's character from 15 minutes and it's like a, and that's basically what the combine is. It's 15 minutes. Yeah. You're trying to get as much as you yeah. can and get an impression on this player that you're no. going to invest $30 million in. I know. And that's tough. And to, to answer your question, no, I don't believe I, I, I could tell from 15 minutes whether I'm interested in getting to know you more. Right. But you don't really see someone and you know, like in sports, you're not going to know a quarterback's character. You're not going to know a franchise basketball player's character. You're not going to know their character until the stuff hits the fan. Those are the moments the character is revealed. Character's not revealed when everything's good. Oh, no, it's all great, and we're sitting here having a conversation. Like, you've said this before on the show about talk to me after you've lost four in a row and things are bad and you don't want to go to work on a, on a Tuesday morning. Like, what is he like then? Mm -hmm. That's when character is revealed. So it is really hard in the process to figure out, like, who someone is. You can see what they can do, but who they are at their core is a hard thing to kind of figure out. That's why I think... You have to take all this news, the Lincoln Riley, the Charlie Castro, you have to take it all with a grain of salt. And if you're a team that's considering and picking him, whether it's Arizona, whether it's the Miami Dolphins, whether it's the Oakland Raiders, whatever team it is, I think you, t I, this is where I have a problem with people coming out just slamming them. Cause I don't think you can get a lot of done at the board, at the combine in right. a 15 minute window. You get kind of a basic, like you're saying, like get to know you, like, yeah. is, he, is he nice? Like, does he have a good personality? Correct. And then you kind of just take that and then you say, 
We're going to fly you out. We're going to bring you out to Arizona. Absolutely. Have you here for 24 hours. Yep. Then you get them in, and when it's relaxed, like you take them to dinner the first night. Absolutely. A little bit more of get to know you. What kind of guy is he? Yeah. How, and I I look at everything. Like, how does he treat the waiter? Absolutely. How does he treat the people at the door? Yeah. How does he treat people that he meets? Autograph seekers. All that. I'm, I'm, I'm observing no, you, all of that. You, yes. The whole thing's an assessment. Yes. yes. And then the next day, we go to the facility. We sit down with Cliff Kingsbury, and you start talking ball. And then you go to Cliff Kingsbury and say, how comfortable were you? Where did you think he was? Correct. His, his football IQ. But to make a judgment off this, off of a 15-minute window, and even if there was two or three teams that didn't like him, I don't know their motives. Right. And I don't know. Like They might have asked him super complex football questions that most quarterbacks would struggle with because they've never played in the NFL yet. Correct. Like, you're just trying to get a baseline read. That's why I think it's super unfair for people to write off Kyler Murray at this point. Yeah, if any team out there is interested in Kyler Murray um, – the due diligence that they will do to get to the bottom of who Kyler Murray is 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 what you just said times ten. Right. Like they will dig all the way into that. Like, well, I don't, you know, I really have a beef with Charlie Castle. I do think you probably should have, you know, called some other sources to maybe balance out the scales just to see. I don't know that he did not do that. Um, I, anybody looking to draft him that's serious about it isn't going to be swayed by this. They're going to do their own homework. They're going to dig into who Kyler Murray is, a player and personality-wise, on their own for, for the next you know two months before the draft. Last thing I want to hit on this Kyler Murray thing, and this bothered me. Yeah. So the the tweet that I saw was from James Palmer, uh, an analyst or a, a reporter for NFL Network, and he tweeted out Charlie Castle's comments, and this is what I don't like. This made me cringe. His tweet was, this is gold. Charlie Casserly is cooking on NFL Network. And then he continued to say what he said. Like, uh, because I get what he's saying. It's like, hey, this is good TV. Right. But what about how it feels for Kyler Murray? No, I, you know, and I get it. You're going to have to take criticism, but that's what bothers me. Is it like, hey, we know this is going to go viral. We know everybody's going to be talking about these comments tomorrow. And that bothers me in this situation. And I get it's what we do. And that's where you get clicks and everybody's talking about Charlie Casserly. It's good for him as an analyst. I just hate that that's where we are. You know, I, I think to some degree, like the Kyrie conversation and to be fair to Kyrie. Sure. Like what we've been talking about and kind of killing him about the last few days. This is kind of what he's talking about. Like in the MJ, Larry Bird, like, I don't know, um, who were the best quarterbacks back in those eras? The Joe right, Marino, Montana. Elway. Marino's, yeah. They didn't live in a world where once you reach this, this level of stardom, the next thing to do is try to tear you down. Like you were celebrated. Do you know what I mean? And today's, today's athlete, like once you hit a threshold of stardom, you, you got to watch out because here come the troll. Here comes everybody trying to tear you down. And I think, you know, some of those guys become exhausted with that. So Kyler, you know, Kyler's getting a quick, you know, a quick lesson in yeah. what it's going to be like to be that, that polarizing, like franchise quarterback potential. And that's why it used to be possible to ignore it. You didn't have to watch TV, but now it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Media people are calling and people are probably yeah. texting me saying, I can't believe this dude said this about you. And so you think it's impossible to insulate yourself from that. NTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has Broomgate. 
It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. All right, so we teased before the break that we, you and I have both been cut a lot. Correct. The reason we were talking about that, because Eric Weddle, the Ravens, uh, was released by the Ravens. The Giants let Landon Collins walk unsigned instead of placing any kind of tag on him. The Rams released Mark Barron, another quality player. It sucks. Like, yeah. I mean, what else do you want us to say? Like, I know Coca put it on there. Like, what's it like to get cut? It sucks. I do think there are different kinds of getting cut. Correct. <laughs> you know, some Correct. aren't as bad as others. Like, if you were an all pro last year mm-hmm. or, like or, or, or a pro bowler, and you're cut, you pretty much know you're going to get another gig. Right. Like someone's going to sign you. Like when you got cut like you or I got cut, right. you don't know where you're going to eat now. It's like exactly. you don't have a job. Like there's no – you don't know if you're going to be a pro. That's different. That's the different part. So I can I've experienced all of them because yeah. when, I was a, when I was with the Giants, I got a bigger contract. So I thought I was going to be there a while. Then we struggled. And then I kind of knew I was going to get cut. Right. But I was still only three years in the league. I was like, I'm probably going to find another gig. Mm-hmm. My agent had already talked about some opportunities. And I was like, all right, didn't, you know, wasn't that big a deal. So I kind of had seen it coming. When I got from the Broncos, this is later in my career. This is the last time I ever got cut. I said to my wife, cause I'm sitting there at home. It's the last cut in training camp. I kind of knew I was going to get cut again. Yeah. But the thing that hurt, and I told my wife, I'm like, I don't think I'm ever going to play again. E. And she was like, why? She's like, you, you've, you know, you've been a backup. You're, you're a good, good professional. I'm like, no, I'm like, my salary is too high for yeah. a veteran. Like I'm making too much money. They're going to go with the younger guys for a backup or a third string. I said, I don't, I don't think I'm going to play again. And I was right. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was wrong, but I just kind of had that feeling. I had a bunch of workouts out of that. I probably had six or seven workouts after that the following year. Even the second year I was out, I had a workout or two. Yep. And that's when it gets really tricky when it plays games with you mentally. Cause in my mind, I'm still thinking, man, I could play. And every time I'd watch games, I'm scanning rosters and there'd be other backups signed. And sure. I'm like, this dude over like, uh, I can't I even get a too. job there. And like, it's just, it's extremely taxing. The good news for me, and I don't know, your kids might have been too young. Like, thankfully my kids didn't know. Right. Like when I got fired from ESPN, that was kind of like getting cut, except yeah. it was more public and more, but my kids, like they were like, what do you mean you got fired? Like what? Yeah, you're did like, you what, do what, something wrong? What did daddy do? And they don't understand. And they had to go to school and kids were making fun of them. So that's like, thankfully when I got cut in the NFL, I was single, newly married. Like it was hard for me to deal with. You're right. But I didn't have that supporting cast that also had to get cut. Yeah. I got lucky in that regard too. Cause I didn't get like the last time around I was in my last deal with Utah. They took me all the way to past the trade deadline. I wasn't with the team anyway. So they just kind of released me. It just hit the, the, like no one cared. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I just, I didn't play anymore. Like, the next, so I had been cut. I tried out for a few teams. I tried out for Atlanta. Um, when I first came out, my first year out, they had uh, J.R. Ryder, um, um, Jimmy Jackson. They had just drafted Deion Glover and Jason Terry. I pr- pretty much knew I wasn't going to make that team, but I was trying my butt off. But so they released me. I went to the CBA. The next year, I tried out for the Spurs, and they had just come off of a championship. And it came down to like me or Derek Dial. Derek Dial had been on their team before. And they kept Derek Dial. I just didn't play well in camp. Like, they paid me. I just didn't play well. So they cut me. That hurt. I went back to the CBA. And then after that, I wasn't really ever cut again until the Utah thing. And so I decided because I – so in basketball, I don't know if it's like this in football, and I don't know why I took it here, but what you do is they have these meat markets in the summertime of, like, every CBA player 
or, you know, 25 CBA players that fit the bill of 6'5 to 6'7, 225 pound wings because they need one. Mm-hmm. And they put you in for two days and you just bang heads with each other for like two days and they're sitting around watching, 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 watching and they might pick one of you to come to camp to try to make the team. So I had lived that for like my first three years in the NBA. So when I got to, this is a real story by the way. So I got released by Utah. I'm still training and stuff like that. Like I'm going to try to play the next year. San Antonio calls me and they're like, Hey, cause you know, pop always told me like one of the biggest mistakes I ever made was not signing you. Like he <laughs> told me that before games. Right? right. And, and so like they call me in and they're like, Hey, we want you to come out. Oh, we know you're probably in shape. Come out and play some pickup with the guys. And I'm like, oh, that'll be cool. My agent's like, yo, look, Manu's out there because he represented Manu too. He was like, Timmy, like, go play some pickup. Let him kick the tire. See if you look like you're in good shape. You know, go do that. And I was like, I don't know if I really want to do it, dog. I'm kind of good. He was like, no, go do it. It'll be a good look. So I get off the plane and Kalina Azabuki's there and two other guys that are in my similar situation are there. And I was like, in the airport, I was like, this is a damn meat market again. Like, and I had always told myself I wasn't going through that right. again. I was going to leave not having to go through all of that stuff again, whether that's selfish or not. I don't know. But so I get to the airport. I mean, I get to the hotel. They drop me off and I call my agent. I'm like, look, man, just let me ask you a question, brother. And this is real talk. I said, right. did you lie to me about what this was going to be? Like, did you send me out here to another meat market? And he couldn't unequivocally say that he didn't. He kind of danced. So I bought myself a ticket. Went home, called Pop, and left him a message saying, hey, man, I really appreciate it, but I'm not – or no, R.C. Buford, I think. I I, I called my agent told him to tell R.C. Buford, like, look, I'm not here for that. Like, I'll, I, I'm going to retire. Like, thank you. It's been real. And then I left. I wasn't I wasn't doing that again. Right. Yeah. Everybody gets to that point where you feel like you, it's a respect thing, too. Yeah. You're like, hey, I've earned the right to not have to go to that meat market. Deal. Yeah, my feelings were, were a little hurt, if I'm being honest about sure. that. But more importantly, like, you know, I felt like I had done that so many times – like, and I was comfortable if I didn't play again, I never wanted to do that again. Like, do you know, like you, yeah. once, once you've been in and, and you've done it for 10 years, like I was like, I'm not taking that step back. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm good. Like my kids were just starting school. Like I would have to probably leave them at home and go live by myself for a year. I was like, I'm good. I'll just priorities had changed at that point. There's always like those moments where you're like, it's just like the rough part of the business. Yeah. You were talking about working out with the guy that you played or that got signed over you yeah. because he had played on the team. Mm-hmm. I had a workout in Baltimore with the Ravens, and it was pretty soon after I'd gotten cut, so I felt like I was in good shape. Right. I was throwing, and it was me and Cordell Stewart. Cordell Stewart had played with Rick Neuheisel, who was the offensive coordinator at Colorado. Okay. That was his guy. Right. Um, so we threw next to each other, and like right throw after throw, like your perfect scenario to yeah. judge who was throwing better. I threw it so you much better him. than him. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, all right, this went great. Sure enough, I got called in. Now, Jim Fossil was my uh, coach of the Giants. Okay. He was on the staff as well. So he called me in, and he was like, look, he's like, Cordell is a little more familiar with the system. And I was like, oh, man. It was just one of those brutal moments where I'm like, I just outthrew the dude. Right. Like, like what, what do you are want you me to talking do? about? And, but thankfully, he did because he ended up, like, starting that week, like, four days later. And if I would have tried to do that in that system, yeah. I would have been cooked. I got to have been uh, bumbling like, I don't know the plays. Yeah. The other moment that I had that was like one of the, the most depressing moments I've ever had. <laughs> so Tampa, John Gruden was the head coach for the Tampa Bay yeah. Bucks. They called me. My agent said, hey, they want you to come work out in Tampa. I was like, sweet. And they're like, what do you want to do for travel? Do you want? I was like, no. I was like, I'll drive. I'll save them some money. Yep. I'll drive over. It'll be easy. Right. right. So I'm driving over in my car. It's like a four-hour drive. I'm probably about two and a half into it. And I got a call from my agent. He's like, Hey, he's like, the workout's canceled. And I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, aren't they? He's like, well, he said some of the receivers that they wanted to bring in couldn't go. They're hurt or whatever it was. Right. He said, so they don't need you. And I was like, well, what? I want to sign with them. You right. Know, he's like, 
And then it kind of hit you me. You were there to throw. For I was that. just coming to work out to throw to be an arm. You were the arm of these dudes. So I was so I like literally. I, I never forget. Like turned, stopped, yeah. pulled over, like did a U turn, and it was like one of those moments where I was like, "This sucks." Yeah, it's man. A, I don't know if I'm, and I don't think I never played again. Like it was one of those kind of wake up calls. Yeah, like, hey, you better start to figure out what you're gonna do with your, your life. Take right? your heart up off the not, floor on that one. Yeah, like, oh exactly. my god. All right, welcome back, Canel and Bell. Uh, Coca is, I guess it's purple day. I have purple on. You have a little purple on. Totally different yeah, shades yeah, of purple yeah, though. Completely. It's not like, I mean, and it's hot in here, but it is cold outside. That's why we're both wearing sweaters. Yeah. Um, Duke was in action last night. They were like a 25 point favorite. I forget the final line. It was 26 and a half at one time. I think it closed at 24 and a half. And if you would have taken Wake Forest, you would have been a big winner last night because they almost, not only did they not cover, they almost lost the game. Wake had a, actually had a pretty good look, uh, last shot of the game. Yeah. But again, Zion does not play. RJ Barrett's pretty much trying to do his best to just carry this team. Uh, he played 40 minutes, scored 28 points, but he was just six of 14. Are you like, Coach K says Zion's coming back. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to be concerned. Are you concerned about Duke or are you concerned Both. about Zion? I'm, I'm, I'm now starting to be concerned that Zion may not play, whereas before I was like, no, he's definitely coming back. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about that. If it was a real mild knee sprain, I would imagine he would have been back already. So either A, it was not a really mild knee sprain, or B, he, there are some reservations from Zion's camp as to whether or not he is going to play again. In either case, I'm concerned. And then Duke certainly without Zion... They have confirmed for me that they are not a championship, like NCAA championship contender without Zion. That, right. That's not happening. Which I'm surprised at considering they also have other dudes besides like RJ Barrett. Yeah, they got, uh, they they got, got Cam uh, Reddish. Cam Reddish. Cam Reddish. Those dudes are supposed to be top five picks. Like they're definitely lottery picks. Like how can you still, how can you struggle this much because you lose one guy and you still have two dudes? Like if, let's say Zion Williams well, ever played at Duke, don't you think they would still be this incredible team or do you think it's chemistry and them figuring out what? No, I, I think they spent a whole summer and a whole three quarters, maybe even more of your basketball season playing through two people, RJ Barrett and Zion. R.J. Barrett and Zion. R.J. Barrett and Zion. And then Cam Reddish is one of those complimentary. He's really good. His skill set as a shooter is really, really good. But they haven't ever really asked him to play with the ball in his hands this year. So if you subtract Zion from that three-quarters of the way through, and to be fair, it's more like five-sixths of the way through the season, Like it's a very hard thing for that team to adjust on the fly to new roles. R.J. still does what he wants to do, but who's going to be the other guy that we're playing through? Do you know? And that's not really fair to Cam Reddish. He does need to be better than he was last night where he was two for something from the field. That's not going to get it done if you are a lottery pick. But, you know, like I I think that subtracting a dude who meant that much to you, like in in terms of scoring in the paint and rebounding and playing with the ball in his hands and and facilitating for other people, that's a lot to ask of a Duke team. But you know what I mean? Like on the fly. I wonder if if what they're doing with Zion is – like if you're Duke, it's kind of like Bama in football. It's like Clemson in football. You play not to win ACC championships. You play to win national sure. championships. Uh, it's, uh, this is what I hope is occurring is that they're saying, we don't need him right now. We need him for the NCAA tournament. Right. We, we need him to win a championship. So let's, we don't, we don't want to risk injuring him, aggravating that knee. Let's get him as healthy as possible. Even a rivalry game like North Carolina, which is coming up this weekend. Yeah. Doesn't really matter in the bigger scale. It really doesn't. So that's my hope is that. I'd love to see him against Carolina. I'd love to see it. I wish, you know, I would love for him to get his feet wet and get kind of get his legs yeah. back under him, even if he only played sparingly. What about ACC tournament? 
Again, like for seeding, does it really matter if you're that good? Like you, of course, you would like. No, but I mean, they would, and they want to win an ACC. I mean, there is some pride that you take away from winning ACC championships, not regular season, but like. But I think still, it goes to your Duke. It's it's kind of cool, but you've got a lot of them. Yeah, your goal for national championships. I just feel like it's different. So again, like so, if you have to be concerned with keeping him and making sure he's healthy for the NCAA tournament versus the ACC tournament, it lends me to believe that there was a bigger injury there. Because if it's a mild knee sprain, Danny, the ACC tournament shouldn't have even been a question. Like, you should have penciled him in for that. Right. You know what I mean? Like, And so the fact that this is lingering is kind of kind of interesting to me. And I do also find it very interesting that nobody's really talking about it to the degree. Like, no one's trying to poke holes in any of this. No one's really questioning well, whether, like... I think it... I think... You'll see this whole thing reignited if he doesn't play in the NCAA tournament. Like, if he sits out the rest of the year, yeah. then all of a sudden it's going to be, is this right? Is this wrong? What does it mean? Should we pay players on all that? But I think people are still taking it as, he's hurt. He's taking his time to come back. He'll be playing soon. If he doesn't, then I think you open that conversation. But I'm with you. Like, a grade one it was a mild knee sprain, supposedly. He probably could have come back already. I had four kids make the same move that he had last <laughs> night. No, seriously. Right. Like, I could I could fall like that right now and, and, and right. be back in a, in a week. Right. I'm hoping it's just totally precautionary. These are, quote, meaningless games. I'm doing air quotes again way too much. Yeah. <laughs> Stop doing the air quotes too much. So, all right, here's the other thing. I, and this is – seriously, this is, this is like me with my inner conspiracy theories. That kid said that he loved the college experience. Mm-hmm. He would have played even if he couldn't, even if he could go directly to the NBA, which I was like questioning anyway, right? But you're telling me you're at Duke. You've lived the Dukey life. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're a part of this and you're not going to play in an NC Duke game. Like you're like seriously, right. if you're the kid that says I'm going to school, even if I could go to the NBA, you're going to tell me that you've you, like you're immersed in all this Duke culture and the biggest game of your whole like college experience, you ain't gonna play in one of them. So here's what bothers me is, the, and this is because I I take Zion his word. I yeah. think he does love the Duke experience. I do think that. What did we hear when he got hurt? Everybody and their brother was saying, "Shut it down, shut it down." What are you thinking? There's too much money. What are you doing? I wonder if like all of the media and that conversation got to him and his camp. And yeah, they were like, "What are we doing? Yeah, let's just shut him down." And I hate that because. I, I totally understand it. It's a money thing, but I just, I hope he's not influenced from all the outside influencers who have a lot of motives. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, ulterior motives. I wish he would do what he wants to do, but I totally get it. Like, yeah. I understand if people are, are feeling that way. Um, Coca and Debo found some pretty interesting numbers that I think are pretty revealing. And I think it's an indictment on our society as a whole. Oh, are you? All right. Okay. Have you looked at some of the free throw percentages on some of the top prospects in the last couple of years? <laughs> no. Like I'm not, so RJ Barrett, who we just talked about, yeah. is a 65% free throw shooter. Zion, Terrible. 67. DeAndre Ayton, who was, you know, first round pick last year, uh, 73, which actually is pretty good for a big dude, a seven footer. Marvin Bagley, 62. Markel Fultz, maybe that's him, 64. These, I think, and I'm, I'm not, I hate doing like, hey, when I played, but I am almost 100% positive I was at least a 70% free throw shooter in high school. Yeah, this is <laughs> it's not no, the pressure, it, but like it's it's not that hard to shoot 70%. That's pretty remarkable. You're talking about either the first or second pick in the draft for the last what is that? 6 years? Yeah. Not like only DeAndre Ayton's above 70 and he's only a 73, which is actually good for a 7-footer, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's yeah. that's yeah, that's right in the, the where you should be. Um you could be a little higher, but I mean this is an indictment on the way they're training kids to play basketball now and the way the game has evolved, right? Like, 
it used to be when we when we when we trained or when you went in the gym, like in between like every set, you shot ten free throws. Yep. Like every, you know what I mean? Like you shot your your set of ten, whatever jumpers you were shooting or whatever drill you were doing, and then you came and you shot ten free throws. And there was an emphasis on shooting free throws. Um, and there was more of an emphasis on shooting the ball. I believe back in the day. I think now so many kids are bred by these trainers to handle. Everything's about the handle. Everything's about the handle. Like because you have to be able to floor spread. They're not running as many plays for players like myself who couldn't really dribble very well and we catch and shoot. Like Reggie Miller, he could dribble and make his own shot, but he was a catch and shoot. Rip Hamilton, he could dribble and handle it and get his own shot, but he also liked to come off of screens and catch and shoot. Um, Ray Allen, kind of the same way. They don't run that type of stuff anymore. Most of this stuff is spread out. Everybody can, to some degree, put the ball on the floor and go get it themselves. And so you have to really train to handle the ball. And every trainer I see on Instagram is handle, 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 handle. Like any guy you find in Florida, anywhere else, they're just going to work on you with your handles. The shot is is an afterthought. Right. you got to be able to handle the hell out of the ball, and then we'll, we'll figure out how to make a shot. Um, so I think the shooting uh, has suffered. I think it's a combination of what the emphasis is on. I also think, and this is this is the indictment on society of youth, I think free throw shooting, pricing it is tedious. It's monotonous. It's boring. Yeah. It takes a lot of time and kids don't want to do that now. Like it just, like, cause I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. When I, cause I went to uh Carolina basketball camp like six years in a row from like the right. time I was six until I was 12. Probably. You love that. I want to send my kids to one. I loved it. I like loved it. Duke I like my parents. Yeah. I went yeah. to Duke basketball camp yeah. as well. Loved it. But after every drill, it was like, Hey, you got to get in 10. Like you were talking yeah. about at the end of the day, there was a massive free throw competition. Correct. And at your own station, it'd be like, you shoot one, you shoot. It's kind of like knockout. Yeah, absolutely. Except you keep going and the dude, last dude standing. And then they would have this massive one where the whole camp is watching. And like Dean Smith, who was the head coach of Carolina at that time would like come out and congratulate the kid who won. They, they like harped on it so much. And I, I think it's a common, I think nobody harps on it anymore as much as they used to. And I also think it's boring to practice and kids don't like to practice it anymore. Yeah. But like, would you with your boys? Do you have them practicing free throws or have you fallen victim to the, hey, want handles and stuff? No, we handle a lot, but we shoot a lot. So I, I like, you know, I, I saw it with my older son because I couldn't handle, right? And so when I started, when he started playing, I thought, man, I have to arm him with an ability to navigate the court. Like, I don't think he's going to be as tall as me. My wife's relatively short. I was like, so he's got to be able to handle the ball. So we spent a lot of his, like, younger, you know, playing days working on his handle and getting him with guys who can really help him with his handle. And then I started realizing in about the third or fourth grade that I've sacrificed his shot for the handle. Mm -hmm. So we had to really punch in a lot of hours shooting a ball. And it is tedious work. Like, I had my my 10-year-old out there now, like, and we're starting from two feet away. Like just form shots, one hand, and you got to make twenty five of those, and then we'll take a st- one step back, right? Stationary. Now you're gonna put your other hand up there, form shots. We got to make twenty five. One more step back, so we get up to like I don't know, a hundred and fifty makes. He hasn't run anywhere. He's standing in the same spot, just like four feet back from where he originally started, and he's bored. Mm-hmm. But my point to them is like, listen, bro, if you're gonna shoot the ball, it's like it's like. It's a golf swing. It's got to be a repeatable motion that you don't have to think about. And it's got to be consistent. And I really, truly don't think go online today as a, like try to find a shooting coach. Right. You can't, you can find like a workout guy and he'll put you through a million and one, like, you know, behind the back dribble, double step back, drag him, punch, drag into a double combo. Like, okay. Right. What are you going to do after that? Can you make the shot? Right. 
And it's some, it's it's just because it's more fun to go out there and handle. Absolutely, throw it off. Sure, uh, it's more fun to just start raining threes. No matter, no matter if you have to heave it up there because you can't even get it there. You're just like any way you can so get it to the dude, rim. Like it's said, more like, fun to do that. Now, now we're just on my stuff. Like, <laughs> so yesterday we're out there and we're it's a ball. We're doing we're doing ball handling because there's practice at night. So they're going to get shots up at practice. Yep. So we get all this ball handling and I'm like, look, I'll kick it out here for another ten minutes if you guys want to shoot the ball I'll rebound for you, right? So they're like, all right, cool. So my Dia. My, my 11 year old pulling up from like double between the legs, double step back from 25 feet. <laughs> right. I'm like my guy. And this is another thing. Like I talk to kids all the time, even high school kids. No pro walks in the gym and starts launching 25 footers. They don't do, you don't see it. But when they come in a gym, we start working from 10 feet, mm-hmm. like, you know, eight feet, like just, you know, seeing it go through the net, making sure that everything is dialed in, right? Like to reaffirm, like, yeah, I can do this. This is good. You know, and kids just have the wrong, people are teaching them wrong. You walk out there and start firing up threes and you miss the first nine because you're shooting them from 25%. Your mind is like programming itself to be missing shots. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. I have to have these conversations with 11 year olds who look like they look at me like I'm an idiot. I'm dad. But I'm like, dude, take your little behind down there, like work your way around the paint, see the ball go in a little bit and then start extending your range. Don't come out here and fire up 25 footers. Yep. Got to get back to the fundamentals. We'll see if those shooting, shooting, uh, free throw percentages come up. I don't see it anytime soon. All right, yeah, welcome dog. back, Kenel and Bell. It looks Spin, good. Bro. I think it looks good. It look might, at that. Look at the thinness, though. Well, see, what's not fair is that in these studios, when the lights shine on it, yeah. it makes it look way worse. Oh, like my Manu, God. Your boy Manu playing in an arena, that, it, like, emphasizes it so bad that he never had a chance. That's how I knew, though. <laughs> I That's how I knew. I, used to, highlights, bro, I used to have a wave game that was strong, like wave cap, like, you know, real good grain, thick. Yeah. Look at that. Oh my God. So I was sitting there one night Still watching. Not enough to work with though. I had like T-voted it, T-voted it. I had like DVR'd it and I was watching myself play. Like, and I, I was sitting there with my wife and I was like, is that what my head looks like? I was like, is my head, like, can you see my scalp from right. above? It was shining. It looks worse under light though. And I was, I was mortified and ever, ever, ever since then <laughs> I've taken it. Off. From them. <laughs> so sometimes it helps you though. Sometimes it can help you in those situations. Um, Trevor Lawrence of Clemson, I think, He's a guaranteed multimillionaire no matter what. With great hair. With great hair. Yeah, yeah. Sunshine. Yeah. My man, he has fantastic hair. Now he's still only 19. So I mean, he might, you never know. That, that would be the hardest part to go through though. Like if you, like I never had great hair. Right. right. I don't know. Like it's whatever. If that stuff was. You had like that flowing locks and that was like your, you were known for your hair and then you lose that. Like 25. Yeah. Yeah, That's tough. So we don't know if he's going to, his hair is going to be all right. Right. But I do think, Financially, he'll be fine. Like, yeah. I think no matter what happens, and I said this about Zion Williamson too, any injury and God, you don't want to wish it on anybody, but if he tears his ACL, if he does something to his shoulder, it's all fixable. Yeah. Like you've shown enough that you're capable of playing at the next level where you are going to be a multimillionaire. Yes. Now, of course, if Trevor Lawrence gets hurt and affects his play and he's not as good, I still think he'll get drafted and then maybe not one number one overall. Right. I still think people are intrigued by his skill set and what he's shown. That he's going to be fine, and yet that doesn't stop people from saying he should skip his next two years at Clemson. He should take a stand. He's not getting paid. He should just leave. He should sit out. Well, Trevor Lawrence was asked about this, as he's been asked a lot about uh, since the national championship came, and he said, "No way." He said, "Everyone's talking about that, but I don't really care about that. It's definitely not coming from me. All that stuff. So I'll just kind of ignore it. Keep working. It's a grind. We're balancing school and football. I think it's important to do those types of things." Um, other sports like basketball, they can leave after a year. I think it's just good. We have to stay three years at least, and we get to make a lot of friends and experience a lot of good things. So I definitely love being in college. Good for him. Yeah, good. You know? yeah, I do absolutely. hope 
And I do think that Clemson will buy him a massive insurance policy sure. so that if he did have a catastrophic injury where it was, you know, like a, like once in a, you know, you don't see it like a, right, like a Mackenzie Milton type yes, of deal. Yes. Yeah. That he would be protected. But ultimately, like, I think this is the attitude that's good for him. Now it might not be for everybody, but I do appreciate him coming out and saying this. I, I do think it's a good thing. It's exactly. I was going to say the exact same thing. And I was like, we talk about the transfer thing all the time. And, and you, you say like it, Different strokes for different folks, right? Mm-hmm. It, what works for one might not work for all. And so while I never, you know, hold it against a guy who says he doesn't want to play in his bowl game because he wants to protect himself from injury, like I have no problem with that. I am, I support that 100%. I also, uh, support him and, and his competitive spirit and his want to come back and experience college worth some of the best years of my life. Like they were, like I didn't have the opportunity to necessarily leave and go pro early. But man, like when I look back on, on my life as a 40 some year old, there were very few years better than those college years. So if you want to enjoy them, be with your teammates, try to win national championships, like I, I support that 100%. I don't, I don't think there's a right answer for, for everyone. You know, everyone's situation is unique. When you're, your first few years playing in the NBA, did you miss college? Uh, my first, no. You didn't. My Thought first it? few years? Yeah. Nah, I was, I was busy. <laughs> like we were out, man. We right. Were, you were like, having a good time. Yeah. My but first, we, I like, I had fun too, but I missed college because and the NFL is so different. Like you got, and I'm sure in the NBA, like you got guys with families, yeah. you got guys that are 10 years older than you. Um, you know, you live by yourself a lot of times. Yeah. I've got a roommate, but like I missed being around the guys and like, like you basically in college at Florida State, we had a dorm where we all lived. Sure. We were all like kind of cutting up all the time. Yeah. And then you go and you're kind of like, oh, this is, and it's not as, Everybody's on the same page. Like guys are more selfish because they're worried about themselves. The competition's a little more cutthroat. I kind of missed college. I was like, man, I missed just having fun. Like, so my transition was different because I went to the CBA where we all lived in a Best Western in Yakima. <laughs> and there wasn't anything really to do there except all kick it. So it was like we were in college again. We were just in the CBA. So I did that for two years. And then I go to Philly where I got a bunch of young guys and even like some of the married ones like w- would like to go out and, and hang out on the road and stuff like that. And so it, it was just a, another college-like experience, you know what I mean? So I never really fully got dropped into the loneliness of being the single guy on a team living by himself. Yeah, because I, I, and I always believed like my first – because I made decent money and I always felt like – Man, if I could have just made big money in college, <laughs> okay, I'm not saying that was weird. but a lot of right. times money does ruin things. Like, yeah, it totally. really does. I do think uh, there's a really easy solution for this problem that the, uh, that college football has. Cause I don't want to pay the players cause I'd sincerely worry about the ramifications across all non-revenue sports. Mm-hmm. I have three daughters. Mm-hmm. I worry that some sports would get shut down so they could fund the football programs. Let them petition. If they, if there was a guy like Leonard Fournette yeah. or Trevor Lawrence, if Trevor Lawrence didn't feel this way and was like, man, I want to get to the NFL, let them petition, let them get graded and it says, yep, you're going to be a first round pick and say, can, and a hardship, whatever it is, but let them petition and let them go if they want to. Yeah. I that, really think that's an easy solution. It seems like an easy enough solution. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, I guess now granted you might have a hundred guys applying every year. Right. But why not? I mean, Trevor Lawrence is one of those outliers. I mean, look, man, he's a grown man. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there, there's some guys that, that, that come in and, and it just common sense should tell you they're ready to go play a pro sport, you know? Yep, for sure. Uh, tomorrow, you know what we're going to be talking about? LeBron. Bron James. Yeah. Bron James. Tomorrow, Canel and Bell. Come back. Bron James.